Well, welcome back to the final session in our study on the kingdom of God. We have uh, looked through um, various texts over the last 12 or so weeks, however long we've been in uh, this study. I think it's been longer than that at this point. Uh, We looked at various uh, parables that Christ told about the kingdom. Uh, We've looked at uh, the idea of two kingdoms under one king, the Noahic covenant that establishes the common kingdom of this world, and the covenant of grace, or the new covenant, that establishes the redemptive kingdom uh, that is yet to be fully realized. And so we've talked about this idea of the already not yet. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, members of Christ's church on earth, uh, we have begun to experience the breaking in of the kingdom, uh, but it has not yet been fully actualized or consummated. And so the last couple of weeks, we looked at the interaction of the kingdom uh, with the cultures of this world and how do we, as citizens of the kingdom, uh, interact with our neighbors around us in the world uh, regarding various topics such as the arts and sciences, politics, whatnot. Uh, and we've noted that our hope is not ultimately in politics or in politicians. Uh, It's not in science. Our hope is in God, particularly our hope is in Christ's return and and his establishing of the kingdom forever. And so that's what we're going to close this series with tonight uh, is a look at the coming of the kingdom. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 21. Now, we are not going to read this whole text, but we will be looking at various texts uh, through the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 22, primarily focusing on uh, chapter 21 of Revelation. And so I will read for us um, just the first verse to get us started. So this is Revelation 21, 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. So, as we begin here in this chapter of Revelation, at the end of the scriptures, John is having his vision of the end, and he sees a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, Things are being made new. Uh, But as we think about the world in which we live, the cultures and, and kingdoms of men on this earth, about politics and science and culture, what are we trying to achieve? What are people generally trying to achieve? Well, some vision, some uh, idea that we have of utopia, right? That's, that's what we're working towards. If people have different ideas of what that would look like, uh, but people are looking for a, a way to establish on earth a kingdom or a culture that would be uh, the ideal place for people to live, the idea, societal, ideal societal conditions and government and laws. Basically, what we're trying to establish is heaven on earth. Uh, that's what all the various kingdoms of the earth are trying to accomplish. And yet, uh, we see here uh, that John tells us that at the end of his vision, he sees a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. So all things are being made new. And then he says in verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So uh, the only heaven on earth that will ever be will be when Christ returns and establishes the kingdom and actually brings heaven to earth. So uh, utopia is not something that mankind is going to accomplish uh, through government, through laws, through greater knowledge and scientific achievement, or through arts and culture. We're simply not going to accomplish heaven on earth. That will be accomplished when Christ returns and brings heaven with him to the new earth. So as we think about this, here in verses 1 and 2, we can see that God is the only one who is able to create uh, this perfect dwelling place and that it will happen in the end when Christ returns. But as we think about this new heaven and new earth, this is kind of the language of creation, right? There's a new heaven and a new earth. The old has passed away. God is making all things new. And so I want to start this evening by simply looking at some comparisons and contrasts between the first three chapters of Genesis and chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation. So in Genesis, of course, it begins in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. 
But here in Revelation 21, we're told that that heaven and that earth have passed away and there is a new heaven and a new earth. So the original creation, which was very good at the time, is being replaced by this new heaven and this new earth. And in fact, in Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. And so the, the original creation was very good, uh, but then sin happened. Right? Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and the creation was corrupted. But here uh, in Revelation 21, God is making all things new. And so if we look down at verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. So here we have Christ on his throne and a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. And so this is a discussion about the kingdom, because remember we've said that the kingdom had to do with the rule of the king. And so here Christ is on his throne, at ruling over this new creation that he is making. If we look back again at Genesis chapter 1, and we look at verses 14 through 19, uh, and we won't read that whole paragraph, but this is the paragraph concerned with the creation of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And then he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. But when we look here in Revelation at this new heaven and new earth that Christ is creating at the kingdom uh, that he is bringing with him. If we look at chapter 21, verse 23, it tells us that this city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Uh, and then again in verse 5 of chapter 22, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So uh, in the first creation, God created the sun, the moon, and the stars to give light on the earth and, it said in Genesis, to mark time, right? They were there for signs and seasons, days and years. In the new heavens and the new earth, in the eschatological kingdom, we won't have any need for the sun and the moon and the stars because the light comes from the direct an immediate presence of God with his people, and we don't need them to mark time for us because they will, we will reign with Christ forever and ever. There will be no need to mark time at that point. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, we see that God uh, created for Adam a wife. Uh, then the, Lord, the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And so God makes a bride for Adam and brings her to him. Well, here in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, Then I, saw, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then over in verse 9, we're told, whose bride this is. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Of course, the lamb is Christ, the lamb who is slain from the foundations of the earth, the lamb of God and who takes away the sin of the world. His bride, of course, uh, is the church. Uh, we know this from passages such as Ephesians chapter 5 um, and uh, others. And we know that the church, the bride of Christ, has been prepared for him by God, purified, sanctified, that he might be presented to him as a pure, uh, without blemish and without spot. And so just as God prepared a, a bride for the first Adam in the garden, he now has prepared a bride for the last Adam in the kingdom. Uh, back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we're told, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And so here we have Satan entering the garden paradise of God, deceiving Adam and Eve, or deceiving particularly Eve. So he's a deceptor, he is cunning, uh, and he ultimately takes dominion over them. But here in Revelation, if we flip back to chapter 20, verse 10, 
uh, we're told that at the end of time, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan, the deceiver, is defeated by the, the return of Christ at the end of time. Back in Genesis 3, verses 16 through, 17, through 19, uh, we have the curse that God pronounces on Adam and Eve because of uh, their sin. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. But in Revelation, in the new uh, heavens and the new earth, uh, we are specifically told then that uh, there is no more curse. In Revelation 21, verse 4, it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. All of those things that came as a result of sin, as part of the curse, are taken away in the new heavens and the new earth. And over in chapter 22, verse 3, it tells us explicitly there shall be no more curse, but the, the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So the curse itself is reversed and done away with in the kingdom. In chap Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, uh, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him, that is Adam, out of the garden of Eden till the ground to till the ground from which he was taken. So because of their sin, Adam and Eve were uh, exiled from Eden. They were kicked out of God's paradise. But here in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, uh, we see that in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so we see a return to the paradise that uh, mankind was initially exiled from. Um, and we see that they uh, now have access to the tree of life. And in Genesis 3.23, he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Yet here in Revelation 22, verse 14, it says, Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So now we can see that Genesis 1 and 2, the creation, we have a new creation that is replacing the old creation. We can see that the effects of the curse, the fall into sin, have been reversed in this kingdom. Uh, and so this new heavens, this new earth, this kingdom that has been established uh, undoes uh, the effects of mankind's sin and of the curse that was, came as a result of that. And it establishes a new heavens and a new earth uh, that will never know that sin. Uh, and so what we have here then is a description of this city of Jerusalem, this holy city, Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, uh, which we know to be the church. And so uh, in his commentary on Revelation, uh, William Hendrickson says this, he says, what we find here in Revelation 21, 1 through 22, 5 is a description of the redeemed universe of the future as it is foreshadowed by the redeemed church of the present. And so what he's saying is, is that the description that we're given here of what will happen in the coming kingdom uh, is a description of the future state of paradise that we will enjoy, but it's foreshadowed right now in the church that we are members of. Uh, and so the universe is redeemed, it is purified, and uh, this new heavens and this new earth are established. In chapter 2, we see that there is a, a holy city, New Jerusalem, that comes down out of heaven from God. Uh, it's a holy city descending from heaven. It's not of this earth. It's not 
the actual city of Jerusalem as we know it now. It's a new Jerusalem descending from heaven, uh, from God. Um, It is the perfected and glorified church. It's the bride of the Lamb. It is the church. Uh, What we experience here in part, uh, our sanctification, the fellowship of the church, that sort of thing, we will experience uh, in a completed, perfected form in the kingdom uh, when we experience glorification. In verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Uh, Well, in Eden, God was with Adam and Eve. He walked in the garden with them. They enjoyed his immediate presence. But when they sinned, they were exiled from Eden, out away from the presence of God. And then what we see over the course of the Old Testament is we see the patriarchs building temples and small sanctuaries where they worship and where God speaks to them in dreams and visions. And then eventually we have the tabernacle that travels with the children of Israel through the wilderness wanderings. And then the temple established in Jerusalem in the land of Canaan. And God's presence is with his people in the tabernacle and in the temple. But now what we see here at the end uh, is that this fellowship that, that we initially had with God in the garden is restored to its fullness when God once again dwells in the midst of his people. Uh, and the end is really better than the beginning because in the beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden, God walked with them. But now, here in the end, we know that we are actually united to Christ uh, in a particular way because of our faith uh, and what he has done for us. In verses 6 through 8, we see reference to the waters of life. And he said to me, uh, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Uh, And so we see uh, the water of life, which represents for us everlasting life. And you can think back to Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4 when he talks about a fountain of of water of life, uh, that if you drink of it, you will never be thirsty. And those who have faith in him will have this fountain of of waters of life in their own hearts. Um, And so... He speaks of that. Uh, We have those who overcome, which if we think back to the beginning of the book of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches, uh, all end with statements about those who overcome, those who have faith and persevere to the end. And here we're told that they shall inherit all things. They inherit the kingdom, just like we saw this past Sunday uh, that Abraham understood from the promises that were made to him, not simply that his family would inherit the land of Canaan, but that he was to be the heir of the world, that is, of all things, uh, because of the promises. And we also see that sinners uh, will have no place in the kingdom. Uh, Just as Adam and Eve, because of their sin, were exiled from the garden, those who have not repented of their sins and been justified by the blood of Christ will have no part in the coming kingdom. Then in verses 9 and 10, uh, we have this Uh, the beginning of the description of this holy city. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So this is the bride, the lamb's wife. It is new Jerusalem. Uh, This is a description of the church. And so what we have here in this passage following is a description of the people of God and their fellowship with him in the world that is to come or in the kingdom. It's not a description of a literal city. Rather, uh, it is a description of the church as it will be glorified in the kingdom. And so we have a lot of metaphorical language here. And so I want to cover 12 features of the the holy city of New Jerusalem, uh, which speak to what life will be like in the coming kingdom. First, if we look at verses 10, 16, and 18, uh, we see that uh, it is represented as a holy city. Uh, It talks about the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God in verse 10. In verse 16, 
The city is laid out as a square. In verse 18, the construction of its walls of jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. So when it describes the church in its glorified state in the eschatological kingdom as a holy city, that implies a couple of things. First of all, what is a city? Well, a city is a place where, it's, where men dwell together with one another. It's a community of humanity, right? And so as we think about the church, it is a community. It's a city where we dwell together with one another. But this is a holy city. Uh, so, so it is fellowship not only with one another, but with God as well. Uh, and it is coming down out of heaven from God, which means that this creation of New Jerusalem, of the glorified church, is not a work accomplished by men, but is a work accomplished by God. In verse 18, it says that the city was of pure gold like clear glass. Well, pure gold is not clear. It's gold-colored. Glass is clear. So what is being said here, obviously, is the use of some metaphorical language to describe something. And what it's describing is this idea that this city where we have fellowship with one another and with God in the kingdom, that that fellowship will be pure and holy. Uh, It'll be pure like gold that has been refined in the fire and is pure like glass that is clear. There's no blemish in it. There's no uh, shading or tinting or blemishes that distort the image. Our communion with God and with one another is pure and clear and holy. In verse 16, it describes the city as being laid out as a square. Its length is great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. So we have a, a city that's a perfect cube, 12,000 furlongs in every direction. What is the significance of that? Well, a furlong uh, is an older unit of measure that we don't use that much, but 12,000 furlongs, if we do the math, equals out to about 1,380 miles. So the description is of a city that's 1,380 miles in every direction and 1,380 miles tall. Now think about that. How high do you have to go in order to earn your wings as an astronaut, in order to have entered space, left the Earth's atmosphere and entered space? According to NASA, 60 miles. 60. This city is being described as almost 1,400 miles tall. So what is, what is this image of? It's not a literal city that's 1,400 miles into, out into outer space. No, what this is, uh, is, a, is some metaphorical language that's being used. Why 12,000 furlongs? Well, 12 we'll see is a number that's repeated twice more in this text for uh, the 12 tribes of Israel and for the 12 apostles. And so it is representing all of Israel or all of the church. And 1,000, 12,000 furlongs. Well, 1,000 is a number that we see repeatedly in Scripture that is used to represent all of something, right? If we think about, let me just turn and read a couple of verses. Psalm chapter 50, uh, verse 10, and this is a passage you're probably familiar with. But God is speaking here and he says, For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, does God mean that he owns the cattle on 1,000 hills and the cattle that are on hill 1,001 don't belong to him? No, he means he owns the cattle on all the hills. That's what that means. Uh, And so that's the way it is used throughout Scripture. We might think of um, 2 Peter, another verse that we're very familiar with. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Uh, God is not bound by time. And so uh, the, year, the word 1,000 here simply is telling us that uh, all the time is God's. Uh, and he's not bound by it. Rather, he controls time. Uh, and so even throughout Revelation, when we look at uh, chapter 20 and the binding of Satan for a thousand years, Does it mean a literal thousand years or does it mean that Satan is bound and Christ rules on earth for all the years uh, in which the church exists on earth? Uh, So this is simply saying that this new city of Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, which is the church, uh, is a perfect cube that expands immensely in every given direction. Uh, 
Now, why a perfect cube? Why tell us that it's uh, just as tall as it is uh, wide? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 6, David's son Solomon is building the temple. And here are the dimensions for part of the temple, the inner sanctuary, which we know as the Holy of Holies. It says here, And he prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. So this is the Holy of Holies inside the temple where the Ark of the Covenant would rest. The Ark of the Covenant where the, the the high priest would enter once a year into this inner sanctuary to meet with God. And God's presence would descend between the cherubim on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Now it says in verse 20, The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high overlaid with pure gold, and overlaid the altar of cedar. So the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle and the temple were designed as perfect cubes. And that was where the presence of God dwelt on top of the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence with his people. So what is being said here in Revelation when this new city of Jerusalem is described as a perfect cube? What we're being told is that God's presence with his people, the church in its glorified state will be expanded to immense proportions to fill the earth and then some abundantly. It's way outside the earth's atmosphere. If we think back to the Garden of Eden, Adam was given the task of tending and cultivating the garden and filling the earth. His job was to expand the borders of this garden sanctuary in order to fill the earth and create the whole earth, turn the whole earth into a temple filled with worshipers. And we're being told that in the kingdom, Adam's task has been completed by Christ, that the church itself has been expanded immensely in all directions to fill the creation with worshipers who are now in perfect and complete fellowship with God, him dwelling in their midst. The second thing that we would learn about uh, this city, the church, is found in verse 9 again. We're told that it is the the bride, the lamb's wife. Christ, of course, is the lamb, he is the bridegroom, and he is the king. Uh, And we see that uh, throughout the Gospels. Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom in multiple parables. John the Baptist calls him the bridegroom in John chapter 3, where he is questioned by some of his disciples that people are, the crowds are leaving John and following Christ. And John says, that's as it should be. He who gets, has the bride is the bridegroom, uh, which is Christ. The church is the bride. It's described that way in Ephesians 5, among other places. And so, uh, as we understand this new city of Jerusalem to be the bride, the Lamb's wife, we understand that it's speaking about the church. But what is this metaphor of being the bride or the wife of the Lamb saying about God's people, the church? Well, it's saying that our fellowship with Christ will be intimate and loving the way the fellowship between a husband and a wife are. It's also saying, if we think about this, in chapter 22, verse 5, it tells us that those who are in this city shall reign forever and ever. Well, in what way do we reign with Christ? Well, if the church is his bride, then we reign with Christ in the way that a queen reigns alongside her husband, who is the king having no authority of our own, but only that authority that is invested in us by virtue of our union with the king. Uh, so uh, this idea, this metaphor of the, bro- the church being the bride of Christ speaks to the loving sort of communion and fellowship that we have with him and to the nature of our reigning with him. Uh, the third thing that we would note in verses 11 and 23 uh, is the light that exists in the city. It says, having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Well, again, a jasper is not clear. It could be of various colors, ranging from purple to green and yellow. Uh, But it's like a precious stone, like a jasper that's precious, but it's also clear as crystal. Uh, In verse 23, it says, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And then we saw that again in chapter 2, verse 5. There should be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So we can see that the church uh, has a light. Again, we're not talking about an actual physical city, but what, what is the light of the church? What is it that allows God's people to see 
the glory and the beauty and the splendor of this new heaven and this new earth? Well, it is the presence of God with them, enlightening them by the glory of God. God is the source of the light that we have. And what does this light do? Well, in James, he describes God as the father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. It says here that there is no night, there's no darkness, um, there's no shadow. It's God's perfect light uh, drives out every shadow uh, of ignorance, of misery, of guilt, of sin, and of shame. Shame, And we can see this um, pre-pictured for us in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 60. Speaking of the restoration of Jerusalem, of Zion, the prophet Isaiah uh, speaks the word of God and, and says this in chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, the deep darkness, the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. And then down in verses 19, uh, he says this, The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Also your people shall all be righteous." So we can see the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah coming true in the kingdom, uh, in the glorification of the church, that there, there's no more a period of light and a period of darkness. It's all light. There is no sin. There is no uh, anything to defile. Uh, there is no period at which God's presence is apart from us, the way the sun or the moon go down and leave us in darkness. No, God's presence is with us continually forever and ever. The fourth thing is in chapter 21, verse 22, uh, where we see that the city had no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Well, again, what was the temple? If we think about the old covenant nation of Israel, what purpose did the temple serve? Well, the temple was where the presence of God dwelt among his people. It was where the people went to meet with God. And so we can see that in the kingdom, uh, the glorified church has no need for a temple for God's presence fills his people completely and utterly. Uh, our fellowship with God is direct and immediate. Uh, it's, it's a restoration of that fellowship that Adam and Eve had uh, in the Garden of Eden. And again, this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy concerning the re-establishment of the city. In Jer Jeremiah chapter 3, uh, verse 16 Speaking of the restoration of Jerusalem, uh, it says, Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. So there's no longer a need for the Ark of the Covenant, for the temple, in order for us to enjoy God's presence with us, for he inhabits all of his people directly and fills us uh, abundantly with his presence. The fifth thing is in chapter 21, verse 12, uh, where we read, Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates, the names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And then again in verses 17 and 18, we see reference to uh, the walls of the city. Uh, in verse 17, then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Uh, so the city has a great wall around it. What purpose uh, does a wall serve for a city? It serves to protect the city. Uh, and so we can see that uh, throughout the book of Revelation, uh, there is this constant reminder that the church on earth is under attack by Satan, that is being persecuted by the nations of this world, that God's people are suffering in one way or another. But in the kingdom, when the church is glorified and in God's immediate presence, the church is safe. No more persecution, no more attacks, uh, no more fear in, in that way. The church is safe and secure uh, with the Lord. The sixth thing we see in verse 14, 
where it says, Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And so we see that the, this wall that surrounds the city has twelve foundations. The foundations are the apostles. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the foundation of the church are the prophets and apostles. Christ, of course, himself being the chief cornerstone of the foundation. So what is it about uh, these twelve twelve foundations that have the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb? I always wonder who the twelfth one is. I assume it's not Judas. I think it's the Apostle Paul who was directly appointed by Christ to be his apostle to the Gentiles. So we have the eleven disciples plus the Apostle Paul, the twelve apostles who are the foundation of the church. What is it about the apostles that is the foundation of the church? It's their teaching, their testimony concerning Christ. Um, And so we see uh, that it goes on to describe this foundation uh, and the gems uh, which comprise this foundation. It says in verse 19, The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonax, the sixth sardius, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth Christophase, the eleventh Jasoneth, and the twelfth Amethyst. So we have these twelve precious stones uh, that describe the foundations of the city. Well, again, Old Testament prophecy speaks of this. Again, in Isaiah chapter 54, uh, speaking of uh, the perpetual covenant of peace and the restoration of the nation, it says, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. Uh, And so there's the promise that the foundations would be laid with these precious stones. It's interesting to note that these precious stones that are listed here in Revelation 21 are the same stones listed in Exodus 28 as being part of the high priest's breastplate. Uh, So the breastplate of the high priest that he would wear uh, when he went into the Holy of Holies to meet with God contained these same gemstones. Calvin in his commentary says uh, that the very form of the breastplate with these 12 stones on it testifies that the fullness of wisdom and integrity was contained in it. That is, in the high priest meeting with God. And the, bre- the breastplate was used by the high priest to discern the will of God. Uh, and we don't know exactly how that worked. Uh, but Calvin's comment is that the breastplate signified that when the high priest went in and met with God with these precious stones on his breastplate, that he was seeking and communing with God and obtaining from God the fullness of wisdom and integrity. And so the high priest... Now, when he entered the Holy of Holies and did that, uh, now corresponds that all of those who are in this city, whose foundations are made of these same 12 gemstones, uh, are built on the foundation of God's wisdom and holiness, God's integrity. Uh, And so there's a, a correspondence there. The seventh thing we might notice is that this wall has 12 gates. We see that in verses 12, 13, 21, and 25. Uh, we have 12 gates. Uh, it says in verse 12 uh, that names are written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And so uh, the gates are distributed, three on, uh, in each direction, north, south, east, and west, which indicates to us that those who have entered this city, which is the church, have come from all directions. They've come from all the nations of the world. But the gates are open, uh, indicating that uh, the city or this church is easily entered by those who have faith, yet they are guarded, we're told in verse 12, by 12 angels at the gates, just as the entrance to the Garden of Eden was guarded by an angel. Uh, But here it is guarded to keep out uh, those who have not repented and had faith in Christ. We also see that uh, the gates are made of pearls. It says in verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Well, what does this tell us to say that the gates of the city are like giant pearls? Well, it tells us that entrance into the church uh, and into the kingdom of God in its glorified state uh, is above value. Think back to Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, the parable that Christ tells there of the pearl of great price. You sell everything you have in order to obtain it, in order to obtain entrance into the kingdom of God. 
The eighth thing that we would note is found in verse 21, um, that it says that the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So we note that the city has streets and the streets are associated with the gates. And so no matter which nation you, which direction or nation you enter the church from, there is a street there that leads you into the heart of the city and gives you access to all that the city has to offer. Uh, the streets are made of pure gold like clear glass. So again, we have this uh, metaphor that doesn't really make sense gold that's clear like glass. It's, it's indicating, again, purity, holiness, the flawlessness of our communion with one another and with God as we enter the kingdom uh, and are able to partake of that fellowship. We note uh, the ninth thing in chapter 22, verse 1. It says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so we note that the, the city has a river of life in it. Again, again, the Garden of Eden had a river, and throughout the Old Testament, uh, we see uh, references to the water of life and to rivers flowing from the throne of God. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the twelve temple faced east, and the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. So Ezekiel has this vision of the rebuilt glorified temple, and there's a river flowing out of the temple to water the nations, uh, just as there had been a river flowing out of Eden to water the earth. Uh, But this is a river of the water of life, which signifies eternal life, salvation, full and free. Note that the river flows out of or from the throne. It doesn't flow by the throne of God. It flows from the throne of God to his people. Again, Hendrickson in his commentary says, when we read that the river of grace and life proceeds out of or from the throne of God and the Lamb, it is emphasizing the fact that our salvation was brought about by the sovereign will of God and was merited for us by the redemptive blood of Christ. We have no other source from which we can gain this water of life than from Christ himself. And the river is full of clear water, uh, crystal clear water. So it is full, uh, representing that our fellowship with God is not in part, but is abundant and full, and it is not contaminated. It is pure. Our fellowship with God now that we enjoy as Christians, uh, we don't enjoy it in the full or uncontaminated by our own sin, but then we will. The tenth thing to note uh, is in verse 2 of chapter 22 that the tree of life is in the midst of the city. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Well, again, back in Ezekiel 47, where Ezekiel is having his vision of uh, the restoration of the land, Ezekiel 47, verse 12 he says this, along the bank of the river, that is the river that flowed out from the throne, of the, from the temple, uh, along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. So obviously, uh, John is picking up on that language from Ezekiel to describe uh, this paradise that exists in the kingdom uh, in which the tree of life uh, is contained for us. It's a park full of fruit-producing trees surrounding the river of life, and it is a supply of food for those who dwell in the city, which are God's people. The tree of life indicates for us everlasting life and everlasting supply a return to the paradise that was lost in Eden. Uh, in chapter 2 of Revelation, when one of the letters to the churches, uh, it says in chapter 2, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So it's using the language of Eden there. This is a restoration. And remember, the tree of life is that which Adam was not allowed to eat of because of his sin. Uh, And here it has been restored and we have been given a right 
to eat from the tree of life. Uh, so this is the garden of God, the paradise of God in the midst of his people, providing them an abundant supply for eternity. Uh, in the kingdom, there will be no lack of sustenance for God's people. It's interesting to note as well that uh, this word, the tree of life, the, the Greek word here that's used for that is the same word that is used to speak of Christ's cross in 2 Peter 2, 24, where it says that Christ bore our sins on the tree. So the tree of life for us literally is the cross, uh, where Christ died for us, or where Christ died for us on the cross in order to bring us true spiritual life. The 11th thing we might note is in chapter 2, verse 22, verse 3, uh, where it says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants will serve him. So the throne of God is in the midst of his people. If we think about now, what does Scripture say about where the throne of God is? The throne of God is in heaven. The earth is his footstool. But here in the new heavens and the new earth and the eschatological kingdom, uh, the throne of God has come down out of heaven to dwell in the midst of his people. And again, the throne is equated with his sovereign rule. So this is the kingdom we're speaking of. It says in verse 4 that they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. So uh, we have God's sovereign rule over his people as they serve him and worship him. And now they see his face. What does that mean for us to see his face? Well, think back to uh, the, high, the priestly benediction that Aaron would pronounce over the people. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Right? To see his face is to enjoy his favor and peace from him. And they shall have his name on their foreheads. Uh, we're stamped or sealed with the name of our God. We belong to him. Uh, we are his own. Again, if we go back to uh, that high priestly blessing that Aaron was to say over the people in number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So here we have, we are seeing his face. We are enjoying the fullness of this blessing. And then it says in Numbers 6 verse 27, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. So in the kingdom, God's name is put on his people. Uh, We are stamped and sealed with his name as being his people and enjoying the blessing of his immediate presence with us. And then finally, uh, we might ask, Who dwells in the city? Who are the citizens who inhabit the kingdom? Well, in chapter 21, verse 7, it tells us that he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So the citizens who dwell in the kingdom are those who overcome, who persevere to the end. And again, we can think back to the letters to the seven churches in the beginning of Revelation uh, that ends, each letter ends with a a blessing to those who overcome, who persevere to the end. Uh, In verse 12, uh, we can see that the the 12 gates that have the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel, indicates for us that who inhabits this city? Israel, the Israel of God, as Paul calls the church in Galatians, the true Israel inhabits the city. In chapter 21, verse 24, it says, And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. So who inhabits the city? The elect from all the nations of the earth who have entered from all four directions into those gates that were in the wall. The kings of the earth, well, we're described as reigning and ruling with him. We're given crowns as rewards that we will throw down at his feet. So this is speaking of the citizens of the kingdom or of members of Christ's church who will inhabit uh, the kingdom forever. In verse 27, it says, But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So only those whose names are written in Christ's book of life are those who enter the city. No others are allowed because there are angels standing guard at each one of those twelve gates. In chapter 22, verse 3, it said, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So it is those who worship and serve the God Almighty who are uh, in this 
sit in this uh, kingdom of his. They are those who are stamped with his image, image bearers. Adam and Eve were created in the garden. Mankind was created in the image of God, but that image was marred by our sin. It is restored in the kingdom where we are sealed and stamped with his image. And then in chapter 22, verse 14, it says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So those who are obedient to the gospel, uh, to use the language that Paul uses throughout his letters, uh, those who are obedient to Christ to keep his commandments, which are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, are blessed to be citizens of the kingdom. So we can see as we read through uh, Revelation 21 and 22 that if we were to read this as a literal description of a physical city, what we would end up with is some sort of sci-fi fantasy picture of a city that is a massive cube that extends into outer space that is made of solid gold that happens to be clear like glass and made of uh, jasper that's a colored gemstone that's clear like crystal and and has a tree growing on two sides of a river. It's some sort of weird sci-fi fantasy thing that we couldn't wrap our minds around. And, And what we would lose if we were to read this passage that way is the beauty and the glory and the richness of the life of the citizens of the kingdom that is described for us here, those who dwell in the celestial city in the kingdom of heaven. As I was finishing up preparing this today, I pulled a couple of books down off my shelf, and if you've not read these, I would encourage you to do so, but Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan uh, describes uh, a Christian's journey to the celestial city. And when he gets to the end of, of his uh, description of Christian crossing the river, the Jordan River, which represents death, and then entering the celestial city, he goes up the hill, uh, enters in through the gate, and, and in his vision, you know, Bunyan's author describes seeing the men enter the city, uh, accompanied by those who are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he ends his account with this. He says, which when I had seen, I wished myself among them. Uh, What a beautiful picture of how we should feel after reading Revelation 21 and 22. I wished I was among them. C.S. Lewis likewise ends his Chronicles of Narnia in his final book, The Last Battle, uh, with a description of his characters going up into uh, Aslan's country, which represents the kingdom. And it, it looks very familiar to them. It looks familiar like England and Narnia, but only more so, greater and more rich and full. Uh, And it says at the very end, the last paragraph of his book is this, all their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover, the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what Revelation 21 and 22 is describing for us, the beginning of the kingdom that will last forever in which we will enjoy perfect and complete fellowship with our God and with one another. And so John ends his vision by saying, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.